Hello and welcome to the Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to this beautiful community of listeners. I love connecting with you online. So if you haven't already, come and find me on socials, mostly Insta, at the Curious Life podcast and at my new podcast, The Days That Follow. In case you missed it, we launched The Days That Follow, a grief recovery podcast, just a few months ago. And it's been such a meaningful experience so far. I've had the privilege of sharing the space with incredibly brave and resilient people who have so much wisdom and experience to learn from. We dive deep into what happens in the days, the months and the years after the worst thing happens. They're uplifting, moving and relatable stories of hope and inspiration. And I know you'll love it. The Days That Follow can be found wherever you get your pods. And don't forget, you can find my book, Embrace change through Booktopia, the link in my Instagram bio or at your local bookshop. Now, if you've listened to this whole intro, then thank you. If you've skipped ahead to this point, I totally get that too. But coming up next is a brilliant new episode that I know you're going to love. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts on socials or in a rating or review, of course. Okay, enough admin. Here's Julie with today's episode. Sean Zepps is a dad, husband, author, and viral Instagram content creator. Boasting over 170,000 followers on Instagram, Sean's take on the real realities of being a parent have followers, including Yana, in stitches. In June of 2023, he released his first book, Not Like Other Dads, a memoir telling tales of reinventing the parenting rulebook whilst bringing up a family as a gay parent. In this chat, Yana delves deep into Sean's religious upbringing into acceptance, his battle with postnatal depression as a dad, and explores Sean's now rule book designed for every parent who's ever just had enough. Sean Zepps, it is such an honour to be chatting with you today. I'm so excited to have you on The Curious Life, so thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you have been someone I've been following for ages because it's just that little lifeline that you need as a parent. I've got three young boys and it's mental and you just make these videos that speak to exactly whatever I'm going through at the time and I watch them. I watch them again. I show them to the kids and I'm like, see, this is what it's like being your parent. It is insane. And they think it's so funny. So thank you for bringing so much joy and lightness to my life because I really need it. Oh, that's so nice to hear. It's such a weird job to create content online and to shoot all of your stuff at home. It's very insular career where you're not getting a ton of face-to-face feedback. Obviously, lots of comments. So it's nice to like pause and get that feedback every now and then. Specifically, I create content for parents and I never anticipated I was creating content for children. (laughs) And it turns out children really like to see themselves in content or like to see their parents in content. And it's become this like cool job of mine to ensure that I'm (laughs) randomly helping to educate children to the reality of their family experience. So that's great to hear. And you know, they can laugh at themselves 
sell. You know, the watching TV one, I think I started where, you know, you're kind of like upside down on the couch and you're on the floor and you're on your head and you're like got an iPad hanging from one arm and whatever. Just It's just them. It's just so perfectly explained. And I say to them all the time, like, you're driving me crazy. Can you just sit still? Can you? And then to see it and for them to be able to laugh and realize you know, this is what mommy's talking about. Or in the supermarket, where can I have this? Can I have this? Please, can I just have this? I mean, it's just relentless, but you do it with such beautiful humor that even they can laugh at themselves. So it's just gorgeous. I love it. Oh, thank you. I guess there is one small upside to social media, right? It seems like there's so many aspects of it that are just (laughs) terrible to society, but this is the social component is that people can see themselves in content just for a second, just for a moment, feel a little bit more normal, feel a little bit better, feel like they're a part of a tribe. They're not the only ones. And that is literally, quite literally, the reason I'm able to show up each day because for conversations and comments like that. So I really appreciate it. Oh, well, you're welcome. And I think, you know, a lot of like I look at kind of what you're talking about now in terms of tribe and connection, you know, it's so important. And having read your beautiful book, Not Like Other Dads, which I highly recommend every parent needs to read. It's just brilliant. There's so much I'd want to go into about it. But, you know, the key thing as a parent and especially as a parent of young kids is having that community and that connection with other parents because it is such an isolating and overwhelming and exhausting experience. And even if you're connecting through a video, you know, a 12 second video, 30 second video, or a real person, you know, in the park or wherever it is, those little touchstones throughout the day are just what you need to kind of get through and give yourself a little boost of endorphins for a minute and then keep going because the job's relentless. Mm, you're so right. And the brain turns on itself so easily, doesn't it? The comparison Olympics, the this is only happening to me, the I'm failing at this job that everyone else is succeeding at. It's like our normal monkey brain. And it's the fight or flight almost that's kept us alive this long that we look around us and we look for problems. And unfortunately, sometimes the problem is a mirror and we look at ourselves. And if we don't have that constant check-in with other parents who are struggling the exact same way or succeeding in the exact same way, I mean, it's just not possible. It literally is not possible because you really do start to quite naturally beat yourself up for the smallest of things. And if you live in the middle of nowhere, or you don't have a a natural friendship group, or maybe it's challenging for you, what is one to do? You know, we've moved so far away from that tribe, that village that really is the foundation of the human experience. We've moved so far away from it. And I, I think we're struggling. It's clear that we're struggling. And so if you can't have those nice connections, I think, you know, you're really set up for failure. It's such an interesting problem, but it really is the key to success. It's the key, that constant check-in that goes, okay, wait a second, not in this alone. I'm not doing that bad. I can do another day. And, you know, you had the double whammy kind of twice over. First of all, you moved to Australia from the other side of the world where all of your Mm. friends, all of your family, all of your community and your tribe and your village was right to the bottom of the world to be where your husband's family was from. And then you had twins in tow. So it wasn't just one. And I mean, for anyone listening, one baby is 
a huge burden and undertaking on its own, especially as a new parent. It turns your world upside down and you have no idea what you're doing. You're constantly in a state of panic and anxiety and stress and fatigue and just not coping. And to have two at the one time, plus be so far removed from everybody that would give you that respite and that reassurance and that love and that you know, connection. I just cannot even imagine how you did that. Not very well, babe. That's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) I would not recommend it. You know, I'm, I get asked a lot of questions about parenthood. It's the space that I play in. It's the job that I have. And so a ton of questions come my way. And the answer to almost all of them somehow ends up working its way back to the power of connection, Mm. the like village, the support network, the breaks, the moments of respite, like you've said, the shoulder to lean on, it really does become the answer to so many problems that modern day parents are struggling with on a day-to-day basis. And so the idea that you would purposely give a lot of those things up in the short term for hopefully a long-term solution that you're really proud of is such a challenge. And I always joke, wouldn't recommend it, but I also am not, it's not a joke to me because I really do think it sets up you know, parents for mental health failure. I really, truly believe that raising tiny humans, whether you have one or two or many, many more, is not something that can be done uh, solo uh, or even really just the duo. It it really does require additional people. And so that that was a really challenging time for us, for sure. And you were so open in your book about so many things. I mean, you shared what I imagine are probably the biggest vulnerabilities of your life. You know, you had these huge kind of identity shifts at different stages of your life from your religious upbringing and, you know, your kind of commitment to the beliefs of your family and your church and trying just so hard to be good in that space. And meanwhile, inside, you're struggling with this reality of who you actually are and is it okay to be me and and having to deal with all of that as such a young person and most of that on your own too. I mean, there's not it's not like you had an internet to turn to and say, hey, world, this is how I'm feeling and how do I deal with this? You know, you were completely, again, isolated with all of these enormous processes. And then you kind of had a big shift in identity to becoming an out and proud gay man and embracing that and trying to learn as much as you could about this history, as you said, that you weren't taught. And then there's this other identity shift again, becoming a parent and becoming an expat. And like, it's just kind of these huge identity shifts so many times throughout your life. And I mean, I just wonder if you look back on all of these big, big, enormous shifts, Was there one that was the most difficult? I mean, when I think back to my life story, luckily I have it in writing now, so it's a little bit easier for me to like, you know, (laughs) actually (laughs) hover above my entire timeline and go, huh. I think the rude reality of being a young queer person, being raised in the Roman Catholic Church and coming to terms with what my adult life was going to look like. And if I was going to be able to be happy, that shift into realizing I was going to be okay is probably the one that shaped my whole life. I love nothing more than to share with grace and empathy and respect to people who love their religion and love God uh, in my unique case 
what the impact is to the Bible or to your beliefs on young people, mm. because I'm surrounded by people who I truly adore, who still practice. And so it's easy for me as someone who doesn't, who is directly impacted by it, but has great love and understanding of why people do mm. for me to, to pause and try respectfully to educate so that the next generation of young queer kids maybe don't have to struggle in the same way. But when you're a young person being raised in, in a religious world, the negative term would obviously be indoctrination. But if we want to think about it more respectfully, your entire world is being written for you, your beliefs your understanding of what happens after you die, the answer to every complicated question is, is you know, they just hand you the book. Mm -hmm. Here it is. Here are the answers. Don't worry. There's nothing to worry about. And when you're three and four and five and six and seven, your understanding of your time on planet is being shaped and agreed upon by all these other people and then confirmed every single Sunday. And so naturally, positively, you know, you're showing up and you're seeing all these people who are really happy and your parents and the people you love the most and they seem really happy and they seem to believe in this beautiful thing and this wonderful God and the great stories of Jesus and what happens after you die. That's all the beauty of indoctrination is you feel a part of something and that's special. The downside is there are these lists of sins will put you in hell for the rest of your life. And when you're a tiny, 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 tiny human, that is without a doubt the worst case scenario. And it is very, very real. And so if gayness is not something that one chooses, I sure as hell didn't choose it. If it just happens to you and you're within this religious world, naturally you learn to hate yourself. That is the rude reality. And you're absolutely, like you said, not sharing that with anybody. You are the problem and you're so small and you're so young. You're helpless in many ways. And everyone you love is not the problem. You are, and you're the sinner and you're going to hell. And you're thinking about that before bed, or you have your cereal on your way to kindergarten class, if that's how early you discover it. And so I don't think the average person thinks about the fact that being a 10 year old like I was when this started to kind of come up was hard enough to navigate those early years of life is difficult. The weight and pressure of being a terrible person who will go to hell is just too much for any young person. Mm -hmm. And I think what's the hardest part for, for parents to hear, no parent wants their child to suffer in silence. But the reality of that structure is why would that young person then open up to their parents to admit that they are the problem based off of what this book says. And so to move into my 11th year of life, to realize that I was gay, to come to terms with the fact that through my religion, this was going to be not just a terrible life, but a terrible many lives, right? Because you're going to hell and that is where you will be forever. Yeah. But that that would have an impact on my family and my family's family and generations was just too much for an 11 year old to handle. Mm -hmm. And I really had to not just sit with that from 11 all the way until adulthood, but it's something I still sit with to the day I get chills right now when I'm talking to you about it, because I'm constantly reminded that for so long, I thought you might as well not live. You might as well end before you act is a sentence that I thought in my head. If you could kill yourself now before you act on homosexuality, then maybe you could go to heaven and then maybe you could live a lifetime and of bliss. Mm -hmm. So I guess when I think about all the shifts of my life, they feel micro in comparison to that. 
That is everything. That is not just today, but every day forever. Yes. And so when I came to terms with the fact that that, that that I didn't believe that anymore, that it wasn't true, that I was good, that I could live a happy life, that if there was a God, that he created me, and if there wasn't one, that I could still live a life without the pressure, constantly was going to live inside my brain and my body. That, uh, yeah, that is, that is the shift. That is the great breath. That is the great gift. That's just the shoulders off of the boulders off of my shoulders yeah. and my ability to finally connect and learn to really love my parents mm. outside and stripped from religion. So easy wow. answer without a doubt. That's the shift. Wow. That I mean, that's, that's enormous. You know, when you think about a little person, I mean, how old are your kids now? They're six. They're six. So they're, mm. you know, coming up to the age where you were having these enormous existential thoughts that mm. you wouldn't want any child to think that there would be no reason for them to be alive. Yeah. And my heart breaks for little baby Sean. Like that's just so huge for you to have been going through. And, you know, there are a lot of people that don't get the beautiful ending that you've had and that are stuck with those big, terrible thoughts and don't have the embracing, beautiful family who accept you for everything that you are and, you know, don't take it as a rejection of their beliefs. You know, it's it's really, mm. you know, a beautiful, beautiful outcome for you. And I'm so happy for that. Yeah, thank you. I do believe I get a lot of moms and I'm purposely not saying parents, mainly because just moms follow me <laughs> who reach out to <laughs> me on a regular. Yeah, right. It's just <laughs> I, I, I'm a primary parent, so I think my experience connects mostly with women, but they'll often reach out to me when their children out to them or when their children are exhibiting signs of potential queerness mm-hmm. and they have all these similar questions. What's mm-hmm. going to happen? How hard is my child's life going to be? People often hear the sentence that I write in the book or that I say in interviews that you don't have access to the script in your child's head. And that scares them Mm. because I think every parent wants to believe they do know their children fully and completely. Mm. And there would be no, you know, when they read my book and they think every night for eight years, you prayed after your mom put you to bed for hours and hours and hours and hours. Like, oh, could my kid be awake thinking for hours and I'm not aware of it. Like that's hard for parents to sit with, but the light at the end of the tunnel and the glimmer of hope outside of the fact that I have a wonderful life is the fact that people who grow up a little bit different, people who spend time in their adolescence sitting in other, sit on the sidelines, observing the rest of the world play. They always, always consistently grow up with empathy and sympathy deep inside of their brains. You very rarely meet an asshole who struggled in adolescence Mm. because they understand the reality of what it's like to be different and other. And that means they respect other people. Mm. And so I do often sit back and think, even just telling you the story again or having to write it, you sit with and go, God, that was a terrible way to be. What a what a what a terrible childhood. How horrible. But then I think of who I am today and I think, you turned out great. You know, you're a nice person. You're a kind person, you know. You're yes. raising the next generation to be nice and kind. And I so when anyone hears the story, I'm always hopeful. Like if you're if you're worried that that's your kid, there are 800 million of us. We're not alone. We're not that small. There are a lot of queer people on this earth. We all struggle in our own special, unique ways. But we all turn out to be able to see the world differently. And I do think that that's a gift. Yes. 
Undoubtedly. Mm. And so much of what you share is a gift because you talk about mental health so openly. You talk about the struggles of parenting. You talk about all the things we just touched on now. And, you know, I think you're probably the first person I've heard talk about postnatal depression as a father. Because, you know, it's just, and and so much of your experience is like there was all of this, these groups for women, groups for mums, groups for first time mums, everything is so like mother focused. And, and that opened my eyes as well for the first time thinking like, of course, why is it first time mums? Why do mums have to go to mother's group? Why can't it be any parent? And I suppose it is open to a parent, but it's still called mother's group. It's still called, you know, so I love that you're talking about all of this stuff because it's so important. And, you know, we know that postnatal depression occurs in men. It's like something like one in 10 men. It's a huge number. And for parents of multiples, that risk goes way up. So it's prevalent in the community, but you're like the only person I've heard talking about it. So, you know, kudos to you for putting it all out there. Oh, thank you. I mean, listen, I'm a educated, intelligent man who is not naive to the fact that for all human, for the entire time, the whole timeline, it was women. It was mothers. They took all of the burden. They had all of the responsibility. There were incredibly rare cases. And it was usually due to a death after birth that a man would step in and, and tackle everything on top of other responsibilities. So I never looked at the problem of men not being included as like, why is this happening? <laughs> I don't understand it. No, I do understand it. And I do understand that a majority of the problems that we speak about, including postnatal depression, are still are still women problems in, in a main way and that we need to advocate even more to ensure the parents that are struggling the most, which is usually mothers, are being educated and are being supported. But I think, which is why you don't hear about it a lot, is that it's just a new generation. This is a new idea that men are active participants in parenting and in my case are the primary participant in raising children. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, as we have the first almost two decades, but really only one decade of men supporting children just as equally, or in some cases more than, than the female counterpart, mm -hmm. you're going to have new problems for psychologists and doctors and social workers to explore. I think it's a great gift to be able to raise your hand and say, hey, I had this problem. It might not be postnatal depression, but I'm a parent. I'm raising children. I'm struggling in the following ways. I deserve help too. And then for doctors to come back and say, it is this, this is the title. This is the thing you're struggling with. The support, the process, the medication, it's the same, babe. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. Yeah. You're struggling in this role with the same exact responsibilities minus birth course but the the mental health mental health doesn't go easy on you because of your gender yeah suicide doesn't just like randomly only happen because of your genitalia mm. so i think that was an interesting journey for me i often say i say in my book i say in interviews i didn't walk in wanting to be included in that yeah. I, I didn't walk in saying oh i hope i have depression <laughs> no, no one wants that so i think it's more important that we're able to share the stories not because I expect men to discover my stories. I don't think they're picking up my book or watching my Instagram, but I would like their wife to. I'd like their wife to find me and go, 
that's what he was struggling with. That's what he is struggling with. And because of, in this country in particular, we're, we're a little bit behind in Australia mm-hmm. as far as mental health support for men. And yes. men feeling that they can raise their hand and say, I'm struggling. Men talking to their mates mm-hmm. when they're hurting. Men feeling comfortable saying to their wives, you know, I'm yeah. struggling. Especially when you've gone through all the hard work and here I am struggling. But yeah. I do think we're getting to a better place. And it only happens if men comfortable enough to say, hey, this is what happened. And I think because I grew up as the little gay misfit, it's easier for me to raise my hand and say, I'm already really different. So might as well <laughs> raise my hand and share the story. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> well, only good things can happen mm. because as you say, it's not something that's talked about. And even as you were talking, I think about, you know, what it was like for me in those early days with a newborn all three times and just being conscious of the fact that, you know, if my partner would say to me, you know, that he's tired or something, immediately I would come back with that competition sniping. Like oh, you really think you're tired. You're tired. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was you breastfeeding know. last night yes. at three in the morning. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and then this one got out of bed and I had to deal with him and you just slept through everything. And you know, I haven't had a good night's sleep in 375 days or like whatever, you know, yeah. terrible thing yeah. I'm like throwing back in his face. But I wasn't creating a safe place for him if he was struggling to say, Mm. I'm actually, you know, not okay. And he does so much of the heavy lifting, you know, particularly now he does all the drop-offs and the pickups. He makes the lunch. He does all the cooking because, you know, all of my work, unfortunately, happens at times when, you know, Mm. I I can't do that at the moment. And he just has completely shouldered all of that burden. And I see a fatigue in him now greater than I ever have. And I think, you know, this is a good reminder for me and I'm sure for so many others to check in and have those conversations and make the space for somebody to not be okay. Yeah. It's really good to hear, even though it's through the lens of something quite negative, no one wants to have to go through something bad to help raise awareness for something good. But the truth is through the lens of a heteronormative society and parenting structure, like you've just outlined beautifully, it's actually quite hard to rip gender out of it. It's Mm. almost impossible. Like women are pregnant, they're breastfeeding. Mm. There's that physical component in almost every situation that occurs. And so naturally that imbalance feels very justified in our understanding of why are you, why are you complaining? Why are you struggling? You didn't carry a baby for nine months. You didn't almost die during birth. You're not having to give up such a large chunk of your time and energy to have your nipples literally ripped open by teething (laughs) tiny humans. And you want to (laughs) complain. And so I think what's like, come on, buddy, not happening. But what's unique about our story is we don't have that heteronormative structure. We don't have the stereotypical gender balance or imbalance. We don't have the script to follow. And so when people hear my story and they go, that's my story. Wait a second. You mean he got up every single night and he was the one doing the feeding and he was the one buying everything and having all the pressure and staying up late at night, constantly thinking about the child's needs and supporting their husband and cooking all of the food and doing all the laundry. And he's the one struggling with these thoughts. And then people go, that's me. That's me. Wait, they're both men. One of them is struggling the exact same way as me. Maybe it's not gender. Maybe it's the role. Maybe Mm. it's the support. Maybe it's the structure. Maybe it's a system that is currently failing straight couples 
and clearly gay couples too. But I think that became the like weird accidental gift of Mm -hmm. you've always felt like an outsider. Now you're actually very much an insider to this parenting world. People are seeing their story and your story. And then that's helping them understand that maybe their partner is struggling Mm -hmm. and maybe their experience is valid. And maybe it's not about comparison. And maybe it is in a comparison Olympics. Maybe both partners can be totally fine. And maybe both can be struggling and maybe some women are awesome at parenting and maybe some aren't like it opens up this beautiful kind of like it's actually not so much of a binary gender structure. And if we rip it, we're able to just look at people and go gender aside. How you doing? Yes. And do you need support? And that becomes the beautiful gift of sharing this story, I think. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, it's so important. And I think, you know, and I'm sure you would agree of all the jobs you've ever done, parenting certainly for me is the hardest 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 job I've ever done and it's relentless you never get off the ride you know you have a few hours of a break when they're asleep and then it's back to the same thing and it's the same noise and the mess and the chaos and the demands and the negotiating and that just constant energy expenditure and there's no I mean unless you're lucky enough to have a situation where the grandparents take them for a weekend or something like that. There is literally no getting away from them. And yes, this all goes (laughs) without saying we love them and we're so grateful for them and they bring so much joy, blah, blah, blah. But the hard stuff, yeah, (laughs) the hard stuff is so hard. And I think that's, you know, something we all just kind of need to keep shouting about. Mm, You're right. Because if we talk about it, the more we talk about it and the more we normalize the fact that it's difficult and the more we do not shame women in particular, but parents as a whole for speaking openly about the challenges, the more likely we are to figure out solutions to make it easier for us. I think a lot of people love parenting from start to finish. There just are a lot of naturals who don't find any of the challenges, you know, to be bad, but there are a lot of people who do, and there actually are solutions. And there are also, there actually are ways to feel supported and to feel connected and to give yourself self-love and to have time in your day where you can chase your own dreams and ambitions and ways in which you can better enjoy your time with your children. We don't always have to sit in a constant state of like, well, this is really hard, but it is what it is. Like we're working Mm -hmm. our way into a new era of parenthood or we're trying to figure out that balance of what would it look like have self-care and be a good parent. And the only way we get there, it's like with every great challenge, it's like the only way we get there is by like talking about it a lot and raising our hand and asking for help. Yeah. Coming up, Sean explains how being not like other dads forced him to rewrite the parenting rulebook. Expect to have your ways challenged and maybe be prepared to whack out your calendar in your phone. This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne. Decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. I think you described that really well in your book and that was something that really resonated with me. The way that you and Josh, your husband, seem to negotiate the rules of engagement, I guess, and knowing Mm. like what you each need to be okay. 
So whether yeah. it's, okay, well, I'm getting up, you know, this morning with them and I'll take them to the park and you can sleep in. And then, you know, the, the way that you handle travel arrangements and, you know, figuring out like what each of you needs to be okay, rather than mm. just having to go along with it. And like, this is really hard and I'm losing my mind. I thought you yeah. guys do that beautifully. Oh, thank you. I think it's one of the great gifts of being gay, honestly. Like, it's just so funny that the thing I hated my whole life became this like weird <laughs> get out of jail free card. Because <laughs> when the parenting script doesn't work for you and the books don't work for you and all the podcasts speak directly to women and every article has woman or mother in it, you're not just going to slot yourself into it. It's not a Timothy Chalamet movie where you're just pretending you're the girl and getting away <laughs> with it. Like, this is your life. Yes. And so, you know, you got to have to go, okay, well, we're going to have to rewrite it. And I think, again, because... 99% of the people who follow me and read my books and listen to my podcasts are women. I often hear, oh, I couldn't do that, but it's great. You could. I couldn't leave my kids. I couldn't get a babysitter. I couldn't possibly go on a three-day trip. My husband wouldn't know what to do. Mm. And I just call their bluff. I do. I'm the primary parent. I raise the kids. I'm the one with all the same feelings deep down inside that I could do it better. And I'm the one who knows the kids and I understand all the nuances. But early on, because there wasn't that stereotypical responsibility structure, we did look at each other and say, oh, gosh, some people love every second of this. We need breaks. We need time with our friends. We need opportunities to to connect. What would it look like? What structures could we put in place? So I think the lack of rules allowed us to create our own from the ground up. And like you said, that allowed us to go, well, you know what? I want two weeks off a year. Over the course of the entire year, I want two weeks. Maybe some of the times it will only be three days, but maybe sometimes it will be a whole week yeah. where I'm going to step away from my parenting responsibilities and my partnership responsibilities and my job, just like a normal holiday when you're in your 20s. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go away with my friends. Yeah. And I go away to Bali for a week and my comments and DMs flood with, but what about the children? <laughs> How will Josh know what to do? But it's the structures that we got to put in place because yeah. I don't feel the same judgment that I think a lot of women probably feel. I want to acknowledge that as a privilege. But what's happened through the process is I've had a lot of women reach out and say, I talked to my husband and he said, yes, I sat down with my partner and we tried to figure out if there was a way and I'm going on my first girl's trip for five days. I think we all have access to that. It's not just a gay dad's thing. Yeah. It's a communication thing. It's are you willing to sit down with your partner and have the difficult conversations? Because if you put yourself first, Again, we're talking about two weeks or three days. We're not talking about the whole year, babe. Yeah. If you can put yourself first in a very micro way, just start with one day at a hotel down the street. I'm not asking you to get on a plane. I'm not saying you need a ton of money. Ask your girlfriend to come to the house, sleep on your friend's couch. This doesn't, this is not a privilege thing, okay? Anyone has access to this. Just start small. Give yourself a genuine break and watch as you come home a better parent. Mm. And then come and talk to me in my DMs and we'll work out a better plan. But it's possible for you. It is. Yes. Yes. That is such great advice because I think so much of us just martyr our way through parenting. Like I know for me, the trickiest time is, you know, between school and bedtime when really like dinner bath, bed, and they're all tired and everyone's loud and everyone has different demands and needs. And, you know, it's messy. And I, one of, we've been working and we've had, you know, our brains everywhere else. And it's really hard for me. I find that is when I'm in my peak, you know, sensory overwhelm. 
kind of state and it's all yeah. just kind of too much. And reading your book was what, like normally I'll just kind of suffer through that and I'll be screaming and like ah, not coping and all of those things and not my best self. But I was mm. thinking about your book and honestly, I just took myself to the bedroom and I closed the door for five minutes. I lay on the bed and it was like, ah, instead of the guilt of like, oh God, I'm leaving Chris with all that noise and the chaos and he's not coping either. Like, ah, but I I actually have to do this. I have to just be here for five minutes and not Mm. hear a thing and not. And of course they all come clambering in eventually and crawling all over me and, you know, then up you get and away you go. But I've recharged just enough that I can keep going and I feel better. And so I- Yeah, I think for next year, going into 2024, I think we're going to have clearer conversations about making those big breaks for each other. And I think, you know, not to sound really selfish, but, you know, I think we each have different needs. And I think I need more time on my own. I'm someone that recharges, you know, by myself, not with other people. And Mm. so I need more of that, whereas he needs less of that, but he might need different kinds of breaks. So I think it's also about working out, you know, what that thing is for each person. And it's not necessarily going to be the same thing. Oh, you're so right. It's not sexy, is it? Like so much of what it takes to be a really good partner is so boring. It's like scheduled meetings (laughs) and sit down, difficult conversations. And everyone is like, but does it need to be this hard? Yeah, it actually does. Being in a relationship and having children is difficult. This is definitely what we signed up for. But I think what we often do is, and it's easier if you've done a lot of work on yourself and I've been in therapy for two decades. So it's a little (laughs) bit easier for me than it is if you haven't. Yeah. But those constant conversations, those sitting down weekly with an invite in your shared calendar that Mm -hmm. says family talk, where you sit down and you build that muscle of what would these types of conversations look like. And you acknowledge that we move through seasons as humans and our needs change and Mm -hmm. shift as we get older and looking at our partner and learning to not see ourselves Mm because gosh, that's what we all do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We look at our partner who's failing in a way we might not and we judge them. Instead of going, you're different than me. You are different. You have different needs. You have a different upbringing. You're a different gender in your case or or same in mine. But even with the same gender, we're different. And that means the way in which I expect you to rise or fall is probably unfair. And so if we're sitting down constantly and saying, is it working for you today? Is it working for you in this season? And then acknowledging that sometimes we have to take on things that we do not like to best support our partner so they can better succeed and therefore better support us. That's a huge hurdle for a lot of us if we haven't done the work. Mm. But I think what I write about in my book and I, and I make it clear, if this is my husband, I know I sound like a guru right now, it's him, it's not me. And I give him all the credit. This is a man who has done the work. This is a man who wants me to succeed. I'm also the primary parent. So this is a man trying best to support his partner who is really doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think what I say to people is schedule the meeting today, make it recurring every week. Sometimes you won't show up and that's okay, but have it in the calendar and ask yourself one simple question. How can, what can I take off your plate and what can I put on your plate? Mm -hmm. But both of you have to be willing to do it every single week. Can I take off your plate, but what can I put on your plate? And sometimes it's super small, but sometimes it's big. And sometimes it shapes your entire relationship. But it's a give and a take. It's not 50-50. Let's take that B'nai Brown approach. It's not 50-50. But 
that conversation and building that muscle will get you to a place where you can come up with the solutions that I talk about in my book, like taking two weeks off a year for yourself. Yes. Yes. I love that. This is brilliant advice. So good. Already I'm thinking, oh, I know he'll want me to do more cooking. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to take on one night. Sorry. Or you can order from you foods and then the cooking is totally dealt with and he there doesn't need to know. <laughs> Okay, now now I'm feeling more confident going into this next family talk. There you go. <laughs> I love it. And so, you know, there's so much that that you go into in the book and I don't want to give everything away because I think it's a really important read for everybody. I don't think it's just for queer parents or, you know, just for mums. I think everybody should read it because it is about partnership and I think you and Josh had that conversation early on, like long before the kids came along about, hey, like we're committing to this relationship and we're committing to sticking through all the seasons and all the ups and downs. And there are going to be times that aren't great. And what are we going to do about it? I mean, to have the insight, you know, and the self-awareness, both of you to be able to meet in that place early on in the relationship is huge. Yeah, it's interesting. I like to say this sometimes, but gay men have the lowest divorce rate. And I've always wondered why, like why? And I know why, actually, it's because for all of humankind, we were told we couldn't get married. And so we always <laughs> feel this like extra weighted pressure that we need to make it work because society doesn't want it to happen for us. But that's like the kind of cheeky way. It's actually looking at real data and then trying to understand it. Yeah. But one of the things my husband did early on is he's like, what would it look like to approach the wedding, like uh, our relationship, like an arranged marriage? I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen arranged marriage data, yeah. but they like always survive. They make yeah. it all the way. And they're usually really happy and in love at the end. Yeah. Like, they make it work. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every relationship should. I am not saying that, please. Yeah. I do not want very well-intended people who have survived terrible relationships mm. to come and say, are you saying we should stick it out? Absolutely not. I am saying it's possible at the beginning of strong, good, healthy relationships to decide we're going to do the hard part. It's not normal when things are difficult to tell your partner every time. I get that. Gosh, it's so much easier to stew on it for two days and just be angry and give him a cold <laughs> shoulder and be mad at him and expect <laughs> him to read your mind. Right? Isn't that easier? Right, totally. <laughs> I mean, that's me on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday, girl. <laughs> yeah. But what, what is possible is to develop that framework early on. And so it's very useful if you're young uh, or if you're getting into a relationship long before kids. And it's also useful afterwards. What would it look like to create a structure, build that muscle of having difficult conversations in real time? It's what any great therapist or even some of the like gurus of, of self-care and love would say is you have to practice it. It's so not sexy. Oh, oh. But if you can do that early on when things get challenging and they continue to get challenging, right? As your kids age and you go through challenges, you get to go back to structure. I think mm -hmm. I say it in my book, you can't stress yourself out of a stressful situation. You can't mm. be so anxious that you randomly pull yourself out of an anxiety attack. It doesn't work that way. No. You need to have created the systems when you're in a good place yeah. to help you when you're in a bad. So how in the hell can we expect parents who are sleep deprived, mm. barely struggling to afford to live in these crazy cities, yeah. both working, juggling the chat? Like, it's just not possible that we're yeah. randomly through all of that going to go, Here's some clarity. Here's how <laughs> yeah. we can survive. No. Yeah. So when you're in a season where things are working, yeah, that's when you go to couples counseling. Mm. When you're in a season where things are really working and you feel like things are calm, 
that's when you have the difficult conversations. I often hear from parents, they have the best conversations on holiday or on road trips or when things are calm. And I'm like, no shit makes total sense, babe. Yeah. You're like, your guard is down. Yeah. You're open. And so I, that's for me, it's about like, thank goodness Josh did that so early because mm-hmm. that we always get to go back to the structures we created before things were wild. Yes. Yes. I love that. Great advice. And it's never too late, as you say, to put never, in those never, structures never, never. and have those conversations. Yeah. Note to self, holiday at the beach. <laughs> exactly. Conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I think, you know, a good partnership is about acknowledging the different strengths that you each have and, you know, going back to the kitchen, I am just not good in the kitchen. I have no interest in it. I'm not good. It makes me stressed. He loves cooking, you know, or at least he loved it until he had to do it so much that like it's now yeah, losing yeah, yeah. the joy. But there are other things that are, you know, the mental load and a lot of the stuff with the kids that I carry. And so we do lots of different things, but we we balance each other out really well. But I think we all can do the self-care and the support part a little bit better. You're right. I really think it's acknowledging, I don't remember who came up with this, but it's very popular on social where you write a list of every single thing that needs to get done in a day or in a week. And then you just put names next to it and different Mm -hmm. colors. And anyone who takes a step back after looking at that responsibility, especially when there's a primary parent, is usually very shocked to see a lot of blue Mm -hmm. or a lot of red. Yeah, It's like we're we all feel what we're doing on a day-to-day basis is good enough because we're, it's yeah. so much for everyone. Yeah. The person who goes outside of the home and works really hard all day feels the weight of that. Yeah. And, the, and the person at home watching the child feels the weight of that. Yeah. And both feel justifiably that they're doing good, doing the best they can, trying mm-hmm. hard for everyone. But the comparison Olympics of, well, I did this and you did this, or I, you got to go out of the home or you're lazy. And it's that comparison that's mm-hmm. unhealthy. But if we can put a list together where we're looking at everything, it does become a little bit easier usually for the other partner to go, mm. oh, wait a second, yeah. maybe I could chip in a little bit more. Or come to terms with the fact, like you just said, sometimes when we lean into our strengths, we don't feel as terrible about judging our partners for not doing enough. When you do the things you love and you really sit in that, even if it's a lot, it's, it's remarkable what happens when we can come to terms with the fact that these things have to get done. This list is long. It always is going to be long. We have children. Again, this is what we signed up for. Yeah. It's going to be hard for both of us in our own unique ways. Let's just try to try to find the joy in it if we can. That becomes <laughs> like the secret. But I, I often say to people, like, if they if they take my advice and they have the weekly meeting and they go, well, where do I start? I've never been to couples counseling or therapy before. My husband's not a talker. That's where you start. Work together to make the list. Mm. Put the names next to it and just start there to see what happens. Just yeah. see what happens. I love that. Did you ever think you'd become a quasi couples counselor? <laughs> Actually, I did go to school for psychology originally. So part of me is like, yeah, I guess it makes sense. It checks out. I love it. (laughs) And so what actually brings you joy these days? I am funnily enough in a season where my relationship to my husband and supporting him the best I can and being a family man is actually what brings me the greatest joy, which is funny because if you read my book or you know me at all, you'll be like, 
wait a second. I thought you were <laughs> running away from that for many years, trying to find creative fulfillment, trying to get back into work, trying to be connected to friends, trying to get out of the home as much as you could so that you could feel connected to yourself. But I'm in a season where I've pulled back from work so that I could be present for my children who are dealing with the normal struggles of childhood, where I can be supportive of my partner who's tackling really serious creative endeavors and family issues. Sometimes we rise and sit in comfort in states we found uncomfortable in the past. And I think mm -hmm. if we're willing to admit that we have to change sometimes, and again, that we move through seasons, yeah, I think we're always better off if we just kind of lean in to what our heart and our head are telling us. I pulled back from work uh, two months ago and, and created family day where I dedicate an entire day to turning to my husband and saying, how can I help you? What can I take off your plate? Where I'm available for my children. And it's just so funny that I'm here and that I'm loving it because just last year I would have been like, that sounds like my personal hell. <laughs> yeah. But I'm loving it. I really am. And I don't expect it will last mm -hmm. forever. I'm sure yeah. I'll wake up in six months or nine months or a year or two years and say, no, I'm ready to throw myself back into work full time. And that's where I'm going to need my fulfillment. But right now it's being a good husband and being a good father. That's really actually truthfully what is bringing me the most joy. Work mm -hmm. is not anymore a priority. I'm not getting all of my fulfillment based off of the feedback of the videos that I make or the podcasts I record. Fantastic. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a key piece of information because often we feel like moving is moving forward or, you know, life moves in a linear fashion and it just yeah. doesn't. We can yeah. circle back and we can fall into the things that we weren't interested in before. And I love that because it means when you're in those times when things are really hard and particularly parents with young kids are probably all in that right now where it just feels yeah. like you just cannot get off the ride, to know that there's a time in the future where you may circle back and that becomes the happiest safest place for you is a yeah. beautiful thing to think about. That's good to hear. I agree with you. I really do. I think our systems are really broken. I feel oftentimes I'll talk to my mom and my mother-in-law and they'll be like, it's so much harder than it was when we were raising kids. Yes. And they're not wrong. It really is. Especially mm -hmm. if you live in these big expensive cities where it feels like it's just not possible to only have one person making money or one person that can't even handle all of the responsibilities of parenthood on their own. And I do think when I felt like I was failing in the beginning by going back to work and not being available for the kids all the time or having to pay people to come and watch the children so much. And I felt like I was failing. It is nice to know that down the line, I created a system and a financial model that allowed me to step back in because I hope yeah. that when people hear that, they go, it might take a couple of years, but I mm -hmm. could get to a place where I have more availability. Yes. I hate I hate the way it works. I hate that all moms, most primary parents take all the time off in the beginning and what they're getting back from the blobs they're raising is basically nothing. Yes. And then when they're desperate for time with their children, they've used up all their time and they have to go to work full time. Like that's- yeah. That doesn't make sense to me. I know companies are changing the policies, but even the best ones are use it whenever you want within the first year or mm. use it whenever you want in two years. But what about use it whenever you want for the lifetime that you stay at the company? Yeah. Or mm. use a, like have two separate entire different chunks for our parents, which is that postnatal time off for recovery mm. and for connection. But then a second bucket of time that can be used or accrued as a parent, you know, over the course of the time you work there would allow us to be able to step in and be more available 
when our children go to school for the first time, for example, and that transition is, is so demanding. I would love to see us reinvent those models. And I do think it becomes more possible when we take a nod from the countries that have dropped to four, uh, four day work weeks Mm. or companies that are shortening the work window across five days or the companies that are because of COVID really leaning into more aggressive, flexible work schedules, all those things, we are moving in a better direction. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the only way the human race survives is parents who keep creating children. It is arguably the most important thing that occurs that keeps this planet moving, but we're not at all rising parents up to the top of the mm-hmm. pyramid when it comes to our focus. And when we do, children are happier. Yeah. And when both of those things occur, I believe the world can be a better place. I believe that in my hearts of heart. <laughs> I love that. No, you're absolutely right. And there's so much work to be done. And, you know, I think about teachers, for example, primary school teachers, they, they have to work full time. You know, there's very rarely many schools do not give an option for primary school parents to work part time. So it's like, Mm. okay, have a baby and then you need to come here and you you either have a job or you don't, you know, just even in that industry. I mean, and Mm. everywhere else, it's it's really not a balanced and family focused framework. No, it's so true. Yeah. And I guess this is like, this is it. This is the human experience. It's hard. It's challenging. We complain. We figure out new solutions. We try to make it work so that we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, and we're on a rocking chair and, you know, we're able to look around and feel like we tried to make it better. Yeah. This is it. These struggles are what it means to be a human. It's actually, this pressure is a serious privilege. There are people who will never have the pressure to complain like this. And so we all have to get to that place where we acknowledge that it is a privilege and then put in the work to try to make the system work for you, not work for everybody, like work for you. Yes. Well, I think you're doing all of that and more with everything that you're doing, Sean. And it is such fun for me to meet you and to be talking Mm -hmm. with you. I feel like I could just pick your brain all day long on all of these topics, but I probably have to let you get back to your real life. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. It's so nice to talk to you about all of this. Well, thank you. And I hope that you and your family have a beautiful, healthy, safe Christmas and happy new year. And I can't wait to see what's coming up next for you. Dun, dun, dun. Who knows? (laughs) Stay tuned. Stay tuned. (laughs) That's right. And you can follow Sean on Instagram. Is that the best place for people to find you? Without a doubt, yes. Okay, beautiful. Well, we'll put the links in the show notes, of course, and a link to Sean's book, which I highly recommend you get out and get a copy of. Perfect read for the summer. And Sean, thank you so much again. I'm so grateful for the chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. And catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.